Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from LCP Delta. I'm John Sloan. And I'm Sandra Trittin. And together we are exploring how the energy transition is unfolding across Europe through conversations with guests from the leading edge of the transition. Hello and welcome to the episode. Clean hydrogen is becoming an important element of many countries' decarbonisation strategies. And as supply and demand of clean hydrogen grows, so will storage requirements. So today we're moving up the value chain a bit to look at some of the larger scale assets, maybe beyond the customer scale that we often look at, and how that will develop. Yes, and we are curious to see on how how it works with the supply, with providing the with managing the demand and also the storage in between, and how this is all balanced out. So I think that storage question in general for the energy system is going to become a, a bigger and bigger um, part of the energy transition. Let's introduce our guests who can tell us a bit more about the role hydrogen will play. Uh, first of all, Nerea Martinez, who leads LCP Delta's hydrogen research. Hello, Nerea. Hi, John. Hi, Sandra. And second, Brendan Murphy, head of hydrogen here at LCP Delta. Hello, Brendan. Hi, John. Hi, Sandra. Hello. So, actually, I would like to come straight to the most interesting point, at least from my side. Nerea, can you tell us about how hydrogen can be really stored? Yeah, of course. I think, as as John alluded in his introduction, um, hydrogen storage has been increasing in, in popularity in the recent months. Um, and the hydrogen economy, we've talked a lot about uh, creating hydrogen uh, production, creating demand. But I think uh, for, for us, we're seeing in the latest months, there's a lot of focus coming into storage and distribution. So kind of connecting the, the point of production and consumption. And really, from a long energy duration uh, point of view, there's three main ways in which we can store hydrogen. So that's mainly coming from uh, salt caverns, uh, then kind of the, the porous rocks, medium, so depleted gas caverns um, and aquifers, and also from lion rock caverns. So those are the th three main types of technologies. Um, they're all at different types, uh, at different levels of, of technology development. So with salt caverns being the most advanced today, a lot of development is, is focusing there. Um, a lot of uh, existing projects are looking to repurpose salt carbons which currently store natural gas and to, to use them for hydrogen storage but also the other technologies will bring a, a lot of potential into the future so depleted gas fields are generally larger for instance and could allow for for larger volumes of, of hydrogen storage um, and line rock caverns have the advantage that, that they can be drilled where uh, wherever it's necessary so the other um, storage medium depend on whether geologically formed, but uh, with line rock caverns, you can be a bit more versatile. So that's kind of the, the spectrum of, of possibilities today. And once the hydrogen networks develop also, uh, we will see line pack storage uh, in the networks as a, as a way of kind of storing uh, hydrogen from point of distribution. Um, and also from a project perspective, you have the hydrogen tanks, but at a much lesser scale, of course. And Brendan, what about the the need to store hydrogen. We're in the really, really early days, right in, I don't think we're even in the foothills yet of the hydrogen economy in many ways. So um, as we get into the foothills and I'm gonna stop this analogy now, you know what I mean. As the hydrogen economy develops, how quickly is storage gonna become an 
important issue and will it be an important issue everywhere as clean hydrogen develops? Yeah, sure. I like that analogy, um, except I wouldn't want to fall into a crevice, but yeah, we'll carry on with that. Um, so I think in many ways, the, the natural gas system, uh, which hydrogen would uh, sort of naturally replace over time, um, has many similar features to what a hydrogen system would look like. But in many ways, it's very, very different as well. So the way that we extract and then consume natural gas is very familiar to us all. We know how that works across the, the energy value chain, across its own value chain. It's not the same thing for hydrogen. So we, uh, in, in the future, when we're producing hydrogen and it's clean, so it's green hydrogen, we're sort of at the mercy of the um, supply profiles from renewable electricity. Um, so your uh, production profile looks very different. Okay, so that's that's a big difference from natural gas, isn't it? Because natural gas is pumped out of maybe wells in the North Sea at a steady rate or um, comes, off a, yeah, yep. comes off, off a tanker. So the production will be variable in many cases. That's that. Yes, and of course, it's a very mature market. So if you think back to um, the last couple of years with the, the conflict we've seen in Europe recently and uh, the impact that that had on the natural gas market, that market also responded very quickly because it had mature supply chains and um, supply, uh, mature uh, routes for supplying gas and re-diverting um, internationally to where the, the fuel was required. Hydrogen's really, really early in its days as, as, a, um, as an energy source. And then just to sort of um, add extra complication to that picture, uh, naturally, when we think about where, where natural gas is used, generally we're thinking in uh, heat, so space heating and in power generation with a couple of other applications in small volumes. A hydrogen energy system or hydrogen economy uh, a fully-fledged hydrogen economy sees hydrogen displacing lots of different types of existing fossil fuels in different sectors, each with their own unique demand profiles, um, price-setting mechanisms, uh, regulatory requirements, safety requirements. So matching that up, um, matching that supply and that demand is tricky. In fact, it's impossible without uh, large-scale interseasonal duration, uh, seasonal storage. Okay, and in my mind, one example that really illustrates that might be the interseasonal aspect. So if we've got lots of surplus wind in the summer and a huge demand for electrification of heat, or well, heat from electric sources in the winter, we might want to turn that hydrogen back into power in the winter. And that's very long duration energy storage. Correct. I mean, it's something I was going to bring up a bit later, but it's true to this point, really. Uh, when you think about energy um, storage as a service, that particular strand of the energy system has been devalued uh, gradually over uh, the last couple of decades in the UK to the point where it's not an investable proposition at the moment. Now, that really needs to change if we're to see hydrogen really meet its potential in the future energy systems in a sense that a hydrogen storage asset developer won't go near it as an investment unless it can cover the very long-term, um, uh, the very long-term capital uh, requirements um, to, to basically hold large volumes of hydrogen in reserve for when it's required by different sectors, uh, much of which is quite unpredictable at this point. 
So you would think that uh, subventions would be necessary or any kind of support program from the regulatory side? Yes, and, and that, I mean, that's where we start to drift into the different approaches to um, hydrogen storage and energy storage anyway, um, looking at it from a regulated asset base point of view or a merchant um, point of view. Now, in the UK, traditionally, we've, we've uh, taken a merchant approach to storage assets, and that's reflecting on the UK, that particular uh, model, um, to, to go back to the point I made just now, is completely uninvestable in the UK at the moment. So something would need to change there from a policy and regulatory point of view to enable that to happen if we continue to go down that road. Whereas I think in Europe, the current preferences to... Um, to manage energy storage at a, at a regulated asset-based level, uh, which of course is a lot more secure, but um, just a slightly different approach from a commercial point of view. So maybe less attractive to uh, you know, commercial um, uh, or private private investors, but probably more secure in terms of being able to uh, get those assets actually built and maintained long-term. Mm-hmm. And out of out of curiosity, then, Anaria, like, do we have enough storage today, and already? And if we think about the trajectory until twenty thirty, and where's that storage sitting at the moment? Hmm. So, I mean, if if you look at kind of the hydrogen market today, um, the volumes of clean hydrogen that are are consumed across Europe are quite low. It's an emerging market, so. Um, as part of the service, we we track uh, in high base uh, hydrogen projects that are announced across Europe. So as of last year, we've, we've seen around 250 megawatts of electrolyzers in Europe. Uh, but we when we look out to 2030, we see this this is currently sitting around 60 gigawatts. So that's that's a over 200 um, fold increase in in the market. We see uh, hydrogen. Uh, Targets also set across Europe with, uh, with the Repower EU strategy, setting a, a target of 10 million hydro, uh, tons of hydrogen to be produced domestically and another, another 10 million um, to be imported. So those are quite big numbers when we look at them. Um, and in terms of, uh, of the end customers, like Brendan was saying earlier, this, this is mostly going to come from industrial customers, which need a, a reliable, secure um offtake of, of hydrogen. So it, to meet that puzzle, we definitely need uh, hydrogen storage. So as part of, of our research, we modeled um, the UK hydrogen system uh, and as, in, an, in an environment where uh, we're meeting our targets. I think we, we set around uh, 28 terawatt hours of, of hydrogen to be consumed um, and then run our model uh, to see how, how many uh, hours a year, basically, storage would be required. So um, trying to match that uh, in, uh, intermittency from the production side to when the demand is is happening. Uh, and we came across with a number of around 6%. So 6% of the hydrogen consumed would require storage just simply to, to match production and, and demand. Um, so now when we look at the, the pipeline of projects that are coming across Europe, um, we see around 8 terawatts hours of, of hydrogen production of, of hydrogen storage projects in the pipeline uh, but that really comes around one uh, percent of uh, the total hydrogen demand we're expecting by 2030 right so um, 
the, the storage requirement really depends on a lot of factors. Um, a lot of them come down to the operational aspects of production and, and demand. But of course, if we extrapolate our UK model, which was needing at least 6%, um, if not more because of geographical constraints that would be placed on the system, uh, we, we can probably start to see that 1% um, is, is not enough. So we, we would be talking more around 50 terawatt hours of, of hydrogen storage required compared to the the eight terawatt hours that we're seeing in the pipeline, just from from extrapolating that model. Um, of course, um, it, it, there's a lot of interest against this in the way, uh, but there's a lot of work to be done still on the way. And I think regulatory uncertainty, like we discussed here, um, is, is still a barrier. So trying to understand how those models are going to look like to make it investable and secure the investment is, is really important at an early stage because these projects take five to 10 years to develop. So really we're talking about having projects today that that are, like are being planned to be able to be operational by 2030. So it's a long, long scale projects. And I think that's actually a really interesting point to make the timescales for these projects. When you think about how quickly or relatively quickly you can go from a plan to operation for a production site uh, versus the timeframes for uh, much larger, cap much larger in, in terms of the size and the capital, and then the time for the project of a storage, a storage site. Um, the it it puts it into perspective. You know the current production focus for the policy um, on the policy side is great, but in fact the timescales for storage are so much longer, and the storage policy areas is, is quite far behind, really. Mm. Nero, just in terms of that eight terawatt hours that you think will be there by 2030 from planned projects at the moment. Um, give us a feel, is that across one or two big projects? Is it across loads of projects? Is it mainly, of the three types that you explained at the beginning, is it mainly depleted gas fields or lined rock caverns or salt caverns? Give us a feel for what's making up that planned eight terawatt hours by 2030 that you talked about. Yes, uh, so those eight terawatt hours are coming from 32 different projects across Europe. Um, the scale of, of each of them are, is quite different. But when we look at uh, a country basis, for instance, um, we can see uh, it's 3.5 terawatt hours coming from Germany. So it's the leading market by far, uh, followed by the UK with 1.8 terawatt hours and then France just under uh, the one terawatt hour mark. Uh, so it's it's really kind of dominated, if you want, by by Germany and a handful of projects there. And in terms of the the type of storage uh, we're seeing, it's it's mainly salt caverns. So above ninety percent of that capacity really is coming from reconverted salt caverns um, that that were previously used for for natural gas. Uh, we have seen four projects which uh, go into depleted gas reservoirs, but um, I'd make a caveat that because these sites tend to be larger. Uh, in volumes, and the volumes of hydrogen are simply not there um, at the moment. These projects tend to blend hydrogen into natural gas uh, storage, which obviously has the the advantage of, uh, you know, you, you can use the existing natural gas uh, reservoir, but at the same time, you're, you're kind of losing the value of that hydrogen into the natural gas mix. Um, so it's, it's a, a few of them before we see kind of dedicated uh, hydrogen uh, depleted gas fields later on. So it feels to me like, coming back to what you were saying, Brendan, this is a bit of a forgotten part of the the supply chain, that we've got this focus on production, we've got this focus on demand, but unless we get this big 
infrastructure type storage assets built, then we're going to struggle to, to join it all together. Yeah, I think from a policy point of view, um, from discussions that we've had, it's quite overwhelming in some senses to try and get this right from uh, a, a framework point of view, a policy point of view, trying to get the right pieces in place to incentivize investment in these really large projects. Um, when you think about the way that the UK has approached the hydrogen puzzle um, through clusters um, as a way to try to de-risk the investment, it's clever in one sense, but in, in another sense, it also isn't really an enabler for um, uh, typically for large scale hydrogen projects per se, because you're limited to where these projects are um, locationally. Um, you know, as in you can't really move them, that they, they are where they are. Mm. And um, the clusters in the UK tend to have some storage or some of them have storage as part of the project, um, but others are um, the, the, the production part of the project is supplying hydrogen to the off-taker on site. So it's not really answering the question about how you join up the energy systems and mm. um, how you get a, a whole country, whole whole hydrogen system um, properly joined up um, and de-risking the investment in that really crucial part of the, the entire the entire hydrogen economy. Um, that's a UK focus. In, on the continent, of course, it's slightly different. Um, that don't necessarily have gone down the cluster route um, and there's more interconnectedness between the projects, which helps. But we are we will swiftly reach a point where unless we do have that sort of six, seven, eight percent capacity, storage capacity for hydrogen, the, the actual volume of hydrogen will be um, slowed down or, or capped, mm. if you like, in a sense, because it won't have anywhere to go. When you're producing hydrogen as, as, a, as let's say, an electrolyzer project, you're not necessarily going to be connected to your consumer. Your consumer in a, an advanced hydrogen system is going to be the storage facility yeah. at, at, at the very high level. And then that storage facility takes on the, um, uh, the uh, responsibility to sell the product later on, and that's where you need to be able to de-risk that for them. And I think uh, up until now, um, it has been okay just because the size of the projects has been smaller and kind of the, the idea of co-locating hydrogen production at the point of consumption is, is quite popular. But of course, as we start to see more of a merchant model uh, arriving and kind of the, the scale up of these sites and a site supplying multiple customers, then that won't be sustainable. And as, as Brendan says, then you're looking at storage as, as that middle customer really. And then just to add to that, of course, once you start to see volumes of hydrogen being imported into Europe, changes the dynamic again. So um, we talk about hydrogen, we tend to talk about hydrogen at the moment in big numbers. So capacity of electrolyzers, terawatt hours of storage, and terawatt hours of consumption. In a mature in a mature hydrogen system, what you're likely to see is different layers. So you will have very that sort of big numbers layer at the top, which will be your power generators and your heavy industry users, steel steel producers. Then you'll have sort of more localized or regional hydrogen production and consumption, where that hydrogen won't leave that area, and that's likely to be consumed by 
you know, um, different mobility use cases, transport buses, trains, that type of thing. And then you've got your international level, which was likely to be your sort of um, hydrogen derivatives, trading, um, sustainable aviation fuel type uh, world, um, where you'll have, again, a different type of storage asset required, maybe at an import terminal. Mm. Um, and I think that's where the policy gets, the policy area gets quite confusing and um, tricky for policy setters to try to create a framework that can incentivize all of those different types of storage. But but also if I see what you're all saying around like these big numbers, right, that are needed and the big storage and I I think it's a huge investment which has uh, which has to happen. So who would you think are the players who can do that and who will make it, let's say, also in the mid and long run, besides pilot projects? Well, I guess it depends on a bunch of things, but um, one being what type of approach you take as a, as a government, whether you go down the merchant route or the regulated asset base route. If you if you stick to merchant for the moment, you're looking at your traditional for the moment because of the expertise they have and the capital that they can leverage against their balance sheets. You're looking at the very large natural gas storage uh, operators that are currently in the market now. Um, at, an as, as, at, a, at a RAB level, if you go down that route, um, you're looking at sort of regulated returns on a, you know, a nine, 10 year period. So that could be potentially your um, gas distribution networks if they were allowed to do that or a new form of regulated uh, operator in that, in that type of model. Um, but just simply because of the uncertainty, I suppose, and uh, is probably closer to the actual firms that are, that are currently investing in storage, but, you're probably just looking at your natural gas companies at the moment. Yeah, that we've seen that definitely in terms of up to 2030, it is uh, natural gas uh, storage operators who are looking to kind of diversify their portfolio or start looking into hydrogen um, as a way of future business. Um, most of them tend to just go ahead with one project. There's a few of them which will have uh, two. Um, and in the late, biggest case, I think G has five different projects um, across Europe. But we, there's also some kind of the chemical players, if you want, or kind of power generators, which at the moment are still kind of um, playing with the idea of, of hydrogen storage. Um, again, as it's kind of not regulated uh, market, it's kind of allowed under the current regulations, but a lot of clarity has to emerge and a lot of these projects are still pending final investment decision again on regulatory uh, clarity needed uh, in order for that final commitment to be made um, from from the parties so is it still really pilot projects test and learn build one type activity in the main at the moment while these bigger questions are debated and then resolved yeah, I think from the projects we've seen, there's still kind of a, a number of questions open uh, to be addressed. So I think uh, part of that is technical feasibility, um, as you alluded there. But I think there's there's still a lot of consensus across the industry that it can be done. It's just mm. kind of uh, taking it from the lab into a commercial scale project. Um, and then also understanding uh, consumer uh, profile demands. That, that's a huge question. So we talked a lot about how 
hydrogen storage is going to be very different to natural gas storage because volatility now happens on the production side um, instead of kind of on, on the consumer side as we as we used to have but understanding how your um, storage sites have to be operated, what kind of flexibility. So things like in, things like injection rates and withdrawal rates then become quite yeah, quite different maybe from what natural gas storage companies are used to. Yes, exactly. So a lot of a lot of focus um, on the salt caverns, for instance, is understanding what kind of fast cycling can be done. So you know, we know we can store hydrogen, but also kind of um, how fast can we pump it in, pump it out, and, and be reactive to that market, but also understand what the market is going to want. So we're seeing a, a lot of. Um, uh, projects now are opening for kind of calls for interest from stakeholders or future clients, basically, um, just to get a sense of the numbers and orders of magnitude they need to have to provide for. Um, And the final thing they're looking for is is an understanding on the costs. So on paper, everyone has an idea of how much it's going to cost, but, you know, taking these big projects into uh, action, um, there's always different costs that that will emerge in in the process. Um, So learning by doing again. I mean, if you if you try to make that 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 kind of problem real, if you think about um, a natural, you know, the natural gas power fleet, the, the 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 gas turbines operating in the UK producing power in the market at the moment, you know, they don't run baseload. You know, they're providing power when renewables cannot, um, and that's unpredictable. It's, you can you can give or take predict the hours in a season, but you can't naturally you can't easily predict when when that will be when that power will be required. So those consumers or that 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 those that group um, of hydrogen demanders, if you like, will will need hydrogen immediately when they need it and in very large volumes. Um, so from an energy security of supply, a power security of supply point of view, there is a case you made potentially for ring fencing some of that hydrogen mm. to make it available for power. But that's a that's a strategic that's a strategic yeah. decision. That's not a market decision. Uh, Absolutely, but it has to be designed into the policy framework, and it has yeah. to be designed into the business model that supports hydrogen storage. Um, because you've got lots of different sectors with different price points competing for the same fuel. Sandra, before we move on to the crystal ball, how does this sector feel to you or what's your sort of observations on the discussion so far? So for me, it, it looks like it's really still an exploration phase, right? And I just remember that, let's say three years ago, probably there was a huge discussion how much hydrogen would play a role in the residential sector also in the future. Uh, especially on mobility. I think this has now moved away a little bit. But um, yeah, but as I said, I, it looks to me like an exploration phase still and the poor regulator, right? Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of it is depending on them, which is clear, but it also shows how early stage the industry is in and that it will still take some time. Well, let's move on to the talking new energy crystal ball now. And I'm going to set the dial this week to... 2035 which well it's 12 years away um, so quite far but maybe not that far away in terms of big infrastructure so Nerea Brendan can you paint a picture or one aspect of a picture uh, or give an anecdote for hydrogen storage in the year 2035? Um, So I think in the year 2035 
we will have hydrogen storage. Uh, I think that's the, the first point uh, that we currently don't have. So I, I think we'll see the first um, sites being operational. Uh, but I think uh, it, it'll be also quite a different environment that we are today because by 2035, we'll also have hydrogen imports into Europe. Uh, so we're going to very quickly move away from those small hydrogen production plants, which are co-located with a customer, um, into a much more traded commodity globally. So um, that's going to change the dynamics in there. Um, and I think we, we will no longer be only talking about um, some salt cavern projects, but I think uh, at this point also depleted gas fields are going to start to become a very key um, technology into the market and potentially start to see the first few projects uh, being launched. Uh, the UK uh, has its own um, depleted gas field looking at hydrogen conversion also, so the rough facility from Centrica, uh, potentially some advancements uh, by, by this point then, um, and a much more obviously uh, clear um, the regulatory framework. I think uh, by 2036, um, the European Union wants to move to that regulated asset-based um, model. So probably a change also in, in that dynamic in, in Europe by then. Thanks, Nero. How about you, Brendan? I mean, to be honest, you hit the nail on the head. That's basically where I see the world too. I guess it's funny you picked that date because there's, you know, there's two, there's two that, that's around the, the date, as you mentioned, um, where we might see some real investment from um, from Centric into into the rough um, asset, and it's aligned to the European current European gas package timeframes, um, as Narea mentioned. So it's funny you picked that date. <laughs> um, I guess what might also be going on at the time, which will be interesting to see how it plays out, is. Um, seeing how that import of hydrogen into Europe plays out from a policy point of view. So do we start to see more protectionist type policies mm. to protect domestic hydrogen supply uh, or production? Um, or are the volumes high enough that they're coming in from elsewhere in the world for a low enough cost for Europe to change its its focus away from um, a supporting domestic production and you start to see a much more sort of international marketplace for hydrogen. That's going to be quite interesting. The, po the politics get everywhere, doesn't it, Brendan? <laughs> Can't escape it. <laughs> no. But then, John, what is your key takeaway then? I mean, if you see the future, uh, how Brendan and Aria were, were writing it now or telling us now for 2035, what would you say is that realistic how would you dry, draw let's say similarities to the electricity industry mm. and the changes going on well, what you said earlier stuck in my mind sandra which is poor regulator <laughs> and um i think when we talk about the energy transition it's really easy to to knock regulators and policymakers, isn't it and say oh they should be doing this and they should move faster But I don't know, would you like to be a regulator in this area at the moment, Sandra? Uh, no, for, for sure not. <laughs> for sure not. But I think it's our job to help them, right? To make it yeah. moving quicker, um, help them to understand that. Because I always say the poor regulator as well, because they are not really into hydrogen, right? Every day, no. but they will have to make the policies and the frameworks. So I think we should do our best to, to help them get the wheel going. I think what Nerea said earlier, the 6% of 
the demand will need to be stored. You could model that in different countries. I'm sure you'd come up with some slightly different numbers. Um, but numbers like that and to look at how hydrogen will move around. Um, there's lots of talk around hydrogen transport, backbone yes. different countries. Then maybe, I guess, Sandra, what you need is these no regrets or least regrets. Maybe the idea of no regrets is impossible given the current uncertainties. And it's supporting regulators and policymakers with these like least or minimal regret steps. And I think on that as well, the the I I, I that that really struck a chord for me as well, poor regulators. But um, as you say, John, that it's it's moving the stuff around that's as important, if you like. And I think what would be really important in the in the coming years is to not become blinkered into how we see various assets in the energy system and what role they have at the moment mm. and try to reimagine them in different ways um, because that that also helps the regulator I'm talking specifically about your sort of your gas you know the gas pipes and repurposing yep. natural gas infrastructure to support the, the the growth of the hydrogen economy and I think the regulator understands that asset base it understands how to uh, support investment in that so we mustn't throw things out for something new and shiny we can we can repurpose things well time's getting the better of us so let's leave it there for now we've uh, got a little taste of the area of hydrogen storage we've certainly uh, shined a light on the scale of the requirements and the scale of some of the challenges in how we're going to meet those requirements in the future thanks very much brendan and nerea for for joining us today and thanks as always to everyone listening Hope you enjoyed the episode and look forward to welcoming you back next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We are excited to bring you captivating conversations from the leading edge of Europe's energy transitions. If you've got suggestions for topics or guests for future episodes, please let us know. And if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do rate it and share it with colleagues. For show notes, transcripts and more, please visit lcpdelta.com.